As we head into John 21 this morning, um, it's important to kind of understand a little bit of the context. So Hannah read it earlier, and, and uh, so it's fresh in your mind, hopefully. But the idea here in John 21 is that the disciples have gone back to Galilee. They've gone back to Galilee, not because they're running away from their responsibilities. I've, I've actually heard this text taught where people are like, oh, they just, they've gone back to fishing, which was their old way of life, and they reverted. Listen, they went back to Galilee because Jesus told them to. You can find that uh, in Matthew 26 and in Matthew 28. Jesus says, after I'm risen from the dead, go to Galilee. I will meet you in Galilee. So the disciples faithfully go to Galilee, and what we see here recorded in John 21 is the third time that Jesus appears to his disciples. So if you've been in this study with us over the last couple of weeks, we saw Jesus appear to them in the upper room, uh, most of them, 10 of them, and some, some others uh, on Easter Sunday night. And then seven days later, uh, on the, the following Sunday, we saw Jesus appear to the disciples, including Thomas. That's what we studied last week. Now here at the beginning of 21, we see the disciples have gone back to Galilee, and Jesus will meet them again. And what's significant about this story is it's the first First time we see a personal interaction between Jesus and Peter. So we've seen Jesus interacting with Peter in a group setting because all the disciples were there on, on both Easter Sunday night and the Sunday that follows, but we have not seen Jesus and Peter have a personal conversation. And the reason why that's significant is that very recently in the story, those of you who've been tracking along, very recently in the story, Peter has failed in a fairly significant way, right? You may have heard the story, if you're new to the scriptures, you may have heard the story about Peter denying Christ. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, there are three different times where someone looked at Peter, the disciple, and said, are you one of Jesus' followers? Are you one of his people? I think you've been with him. And on three successive times, Peter denies it, denies that he knows Jesus, or that he's one of his disciples. The third time, even with the curse, and just like Jesus had said, Jesus had told him he would deny. That's exactly what Peter does. The rooster crows, just like Jesus said it would. And Peter is gutted, right? Because he'd made all these bold claims about himself. He'd said that he was faithful. and He'd said that he was loyal. He said not only would he not deny Jesus, but he would rather die than deny Jesus. And at the time, Jesus had looked at him patiently and said, man, you don't, you don't even know what you're talking about. Like, you will deny me three times. So in John 21, we see the first interaction, personal interaction between Peter and Jesus that's recorded for us after that failure, after that mistake. Now, I don't know about you, but knowing that you're a human and knowing as a human, I, I feel like all of us have these moments where we blunder. We all have these failures in our life. We have these mistakes, even mistakes and, and failures where we've guaranteed people we wouldn't make a mistake, places where we were positive we would do the right thing, and then we've gone on to, to blow it. I don't know if you have boneheaded moments in your life. You have moments that you regret, some guilt and shame that maybe is pervasive in your life that you can't seem to get rid of. For many people, our mistakes can even start to define us. There are like these life-defining moments where our failures become so large that we sort of think of ourselves in terms of being a failure. I don't want to put too many words into Peter's mouth here, but I do want to say that denying the person that he himself said was the Lord, was the Son of God, was the coming one, the Messiah, to deny that Jesus who then was crucified, that wouldn't just be a tiny thing in his life. I'm, I'm imagining that looms fairly large in his life. We've all had embarrassing moments. My, uh, my most embarrassing moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it with, just with a little crowd here this morning. Uh, the, the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to me happened to me when I was a, a freshman in high school. And uh, I was in the marching band. Some of you know that. As a freshman in high school, um, when you're in the marching band at my school, I was a part of the drum line. 
And uh, the freshmen all played cymbals. So you play a crash cymbal. I don't know how much you know about a crash cymbal, but you've got these big metal cymbals, and there's a leather strap that goes through a hole that's drilled in the center. You tie that into a knot. Then you hold on to the leather straps on the outside, and you crash them together. So in the Star Spangled Banner, you know, you've heard it, right? But what you might not know is that in a marching band, uh, the cymbal players don't just use the crash cymbals to crash. They also are sometimes required to play the cymbals in a, in a hi-hat fashion, which what you do for that then is you turn and you have one cymbal on the bottom and one on the top, right? And in order to do that in a marching band and to provide a hi-hat cymbal for the snare drummers, the cymbal players then have to turn, face the snare drummers, and they have to march the entire field routine in reverse with their backs facing the audience. Does that make sense? So it's a as a freshman, I learned all the routines backwards and, uh, and had to know how to do that hi-hat thing. That's all just background information for my moment. So my, uh, I went to high school in Arizona, and uh, we practiced all season. We played all the football games. We played a couple of different competitions. But the big marching band competition in Arizona happens at Arizona State University. ASU Band Day, they call it. All of the marching bands in the state show up on that particular Saturday and Sunday. You perform your routines in front of a stadium of 10,000 people as well as like nationally renowned judges and they adjudicate the marching band routines and then they give you a score. Now my marching band was fairly well known. Like we were, we had sort of a reputation to maintain and so we had worked really hard for those three songs. You could do three songs in front of the judges and you're working all year for that moment. So I remember it like it was yesterday. We're standing at parade rest on the sidelines in the stadium at ASU. We're waiting for our moment to take the field and play our songs in front of the, the crowd and the judges. And while we're standing there at parade rest, uh, they give us our two-minute warning that we're about to take the field. And right about the time they give us the two-minute warning, catastrophe broke out, right? Here's what happens. My, my right-hand strap came untied. That knot on the inside of the symbol comes untied. And so then what happens is there's nothing holding the symbol to the strap. The symbol slides off the strap and crashes to the ground with, of course, a loud noise at my feet, right? While we're supposed to be silent on the sidelines. All the upperclassmen behind me start to cuss at me and call me, you idiot freshman, bleepity bleep this. You're ruining our score. You're going to wreck this whole day. Pick up that bleeping symbol, you know, whatever. So I'm like, frantic, right? We've got now like 90 seconds before we take the field. So I go down really fast to pick up the cymbal. And when I do, I hear a sound that's even worse than the sound of the cymbal crash. The sound I hear in that moment is the sound of my pants ripping. And when I say, when I say that my pants ripped, I mean they ripped all, all the way from the bottom of my zipper to the back belt loop. So essentially what I got are two legs, Uh, you know, basically just attached by a zipper. That's what I'm dealing with, right? There are these uh, tight black polyester band pants, and I'm wearing whitey tidy Hanes underwear, you know? I can immediately feel the breeze. Uh, So I'm I'm trying to retie the cymbal, and the upperclassmen are like, bro, we can see your drawers, you know? And I'm like, ah. And then, just like that, I get the thing retied. The drum major blows the four count for us to take the field. Like, I don't have time to do anything about this, you know, so we just march out on the field and my underpants are showing, you know, and then it occurs to me that all four of the songs we prepared for that particular routine did not require a crash cymbal, but required hi-hat, which means that my first four counts of the first song were these, one, two, three, four, and I did all three songs with my underpants showing to 10,000 people at ASU Stadium. 
Now that was miserable enough, right? And it, uh, that would have been hard to live down and was a di- very difficult moment for freshmen in high school. But what made it worse is that on Monday you go to school and they make you watch the VHS recording of it, right? <laughs> so they make a VHS tape and you watch it in band and the judges have microphones and they give you notes, like feedback, right? So we're sitting in the band room and I already know what's going to happen, you know, sitting in the band room and then the judges are like this. They're like, flute players, your pitch is lovely. Trumpets, love those high knees. Keep it up. Great high knees. Drumline, nice underpants. You know, like, no! You know, like, just the worst. And, and that's the kind of thing that is like a defining moment. There really wasn't another competition all four years in high school that I didn't have people go, you brought safety pins, right? You know, or some kind of like, I hope you got wearing clean underwear or whatever. Like, I, that's a very difficult thing to live down. Now, that's a funny thing, as awkward as it was at the moment. In hindsight, no pun intended, we can look back. It's a good joke. One of the security team just made that joke to me after the last service, and I'm like, I'm going to use that. In hindsight, uh, we look back, and it's funny, but in the moment, as a freshman, that was crushing. For many of us in the room this morning, there are moments in your life that aren't funny at all. Places where things have come off the rails or where you've made the wrong choice or you've done something or said something or gone somewhere that you regret. And there are ways, just like for Peter in John 21, we feel like our lives become defined by failure. Our lives become defined by the thing we did wrong or the thing we said we wouldn't do that we keep doing. And so I love John 21 because there is this beautiful, intimate interaction between Jesus and Peter. We see them talking to each other for the first time and we see Jesus do on purpose Some really beautiful restoration here. I want us to look at it together. This is in John 21, verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. If we've learned anything in John, we know these guys are not great at catching fish, right? I don't know what their deal is, but they don't catch anything. Verse four, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? I don't know if this feels familiar to you, but one of the very first interactions that Jesus has with the disciples we see in Luke 5, it's almost exactly the same thing. They haven't caught anything. And Jesus comes upon them. Remember, he has that conversation with them about being fishers of men. Here, it's almost a repeat of that scene. It's nighttime. These guys are out on the water. They haven't caught anything. They see a guy on the shore. And by the way, if you've been fishing and you haven't caught anything, the last thing you want is some knucklehead on the beach calling out instructions to you, Right? So this guy calls out, I love the way Hannah read it earlier, but to be honest with you, like when Jesus calls out and says, children, do you have any fish? I don't think they answer him, no, right? I think that's lovely, but I think what they probably said was no, right? Because if you haven't caught any fish, you don't want anybody bugging you, right? He says, children, have you caught any fish? And they're like, no. And then he does what all pests like to do. He says, well, I got an idea of how you might fish. Throw your nets on the other side. Jesus says in verse six, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. I love the fact that even in this moment, these disciples are still dependent upon his prompting. You and I, we never lose that. We never lose, as disciples of Jesus, we never lose our dependence upon his prompting. No matter what we've experienced and where we've gone, it's still necessary for us to listen for his guidance. They haven't caught anything, and Jesus has tried the other side. So they, they follow his instructions, not even knowing it's Jesus. They cast it, 
verse 6, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. In that moment, John, the disciple that Jesus loves, puts two pieces together, right? He remembers the Luke 5 account, not from reading it, but having been there. And he says, this is, this is Jesus. That's not just a guy who's pestering us about fishing. It's not just an annoying dude who's trying to tell us how to do our jobs. That is the Lord. Now, I want you to think about your life for a second, and I want, to think, I want you to think about the moments where you've failed, or maybe you've let somebody down. I want you to think about what the relationship feels like when you've protested maybe too much and done the exact thing that somebody said you would do that you said you wouldn't do, those moments where you're going to see that person again. The moments where I told my wife I would take out the trash and then I get to work and realize I forgot to do it and then I know at the end of the day I'm gonna have to like look her in the eye and go, I didn't do what I said I was gonna do. That's not a great feeling. It's not a great feeling when we have to look into the eye of the person we did dirty. And so John looks over at Peter and he goes, that's not just a pest on the beach, it's the Lord. And it says that Peter wraps his outer garment around him because he was stripped for fishing and it says he flings, literally the translation is that he flings himself into the water. He tumbles into the water, right? Now, if you didn't read the rest of this, you would sort of assume, or at least I would assume, based on the way I respond to conflict and failure and shame and guilt, that he flung himself out of the opposite side of the boat and he was trying to swim across the Sea of Galilee to get away from Jesus, right? That in that moment when you realize that you're a hundred yards from the king of the universe who you denied while he was on the cross right? Or just before he was on the cross. That in that moment, you realize he's there and you bundle yourself up and you try and get away from him. That's not what Peter does. I think for many of us in our guilt and our shame, in our betrayals, in the moments where we've blown it, where we become defined by our mistakes, we have a reluctance to approach God. Not unlike what we see Adam and Eve do in Genesis chapter three, right? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, remember after Adam and Eve had sinned for the first time and eaten the fruit they were told not to eat, it says in Genesis 3, 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It didn't work. They weren't able to stay hidden. That doesn't ever work. But I wonder if there wouldn't maybe be some of you here this morning who've been actively trying to avoid locking eyes with Jesus because you've blown it because you're trapped in habitual sin, because you've been trying, but you've been failing, and you just feel like a wreck and a mess, and so you feel like what you gotta do is hide, that you gotta avoid his gaze. I want you to see in John 21 that Peter doesn't wrap his coat around him and try to get away. It says Peter wraps his coat around him, and he flings himself out of the boat toward Jesus. What that speaks to us is of an understanding of the character of Jesus that many of us miss, an understanding of the grace and the love and the patience and the generosity of Jesus that drives Peter not to flee, not to hide, not to duck down in the boat and try not to be seen, but rather he doesn't even want to wait for the boat to row in. He doesn't want to wait for the time it takes to take the boat a hundred yards to shore. Peter wants to get there now. He actually wants to be near to Jesus. And that's instructive to me in my guilt and my shame, in my failure that in those moments where I'm tempted to hide, it's because I've misunderstood who Jesus is. Peter wraps his outer garment around himself. Go back to the text and look at it here. It says, that disciple, this is verse seven, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. 
The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. I love this story. Well, p- part of the reason why I love this story is that I'm a guy who loves breakfast, right? So some of you know, I'm, I'm constantly on the hunt for the best breakfast burrito. Like I'm always looking for, I just like breakfast no matter what. The idea of Jesus, the creator of the universe making breakfast, like how good is that breakfast, Right. Like, I'm not a dude who likes to eat fish for breakfast, but if Jesus was cooking it, I think it's probably pretty awesome breakfast. They get into shore, Peter swims into shore, and Jesus has a fire already made. He's got a fire going, and he's got bread. We don't know where the bread came from. Jesus has the bread, apparently, and he's got fish laid out that he's cooking for breakfast. I want you to picture this in your mind. I want you to see the way that Jesus continues to provide for them. He doesn't go, hey, you know, some of you can have breakfast but not the denier. You sit over there, right? No, Jesus is preparing a meal for them. And we don't even know how Jesus got the fish. Like, it doesn't tell us how Jesus got the fish. I assume that because he's Jesus, he just takes the frying pan down to the shore and goes, hey, I need to cook some fish for breakfast. And they're like, okay, Jesus. And they jump in, right? You know, thank you guys, you know, whatever. And he comes back over and puts it on the fire. Like, I don't know. It doesn't tell us when he was fishing, But he is cooking them breakfast when they arrive. And then he goes one step further, and this is really vital. He goes one step further, and he looks at them, and he says, bring some of the fish that you've already caught and add it to the fire. Why? Does he need their fish? No. However he got his fish, he could have got more, right? If he walked to the shore, or if he did it like he did with the loaves and the fishes, and he just multiplied it, I don't know. I don't know where he gets his fish, but Jesus has fish. He doesn't need their fish, and yet he invites them to bring their fish and add to what he's already doing. What does that show us? Well, this is a great, it's a beautiful picture of what all discipleship is. There are a couple of those in this text. Jesus invites them to add their fish to the fire, not because he needs their fish, but because he wants them to experience the joy of participating in what he is already doing. He wants them to experience the joy of participating in what he's already doing. Can I tell you that's what ministry all is? God invites us. What do we see in John 20? Last week, Jesus shows up in the locked room, right? Actually, it was two weeks ago. He shows up in the locked room and he says what? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. What's he doing there? He's not saying, well, my my mission's over and now your mission can start. What he's saying is, we have a mission together. God has sent me on this mission and I'm inviting you to participate in what I'm doing. The mission is to carry the message of reconciliation to the world. God sent me to take the sins of mankind upon myself, to die on the cross and shed my blood, to rise from the dead and extend by my grace resurrection life to people who were lost and dead in their sin. So in John 20, when Jesus says, come and join me in this mission to carry reconciliation to the world, to bring shalom between God and man, it's the very same thing he's doing in John 21 when he says, bring some of your fish and add them to the fire. He's encouraging them and including them in what he's already got going. For us, you and I who are disciples, and I know that some of you are not followers of Jesus, but for those of us who are followers of Jesus, can I tell you, this is a description of what God calls us to in using our gifts and our talents. The key for us is to figure out what Jesus is cooking and bring what we can. But here's the other thing I want you to know. The fish that they bring, the fish that they bring in out of the fire, they couldn't have contributed unless he gave them to him first. Remember, they fished all night and hadn't caught anything. So when the Lord Jesus invites us to participate in what he's already cooking, 
what we bring, whether it's a, a teaching gift, whatever it is, wh- whether it's a gift of service, whether it's a gift of mercy, a gift of prayer, whatever you've been given that God invites you to come and bring, you wouldn't have had those things unless he gave them to you in the first place. I think sometimes oh, in the midst of you know, an offering, in the midst of a worship service, you hear this thing and it almost becomes like redundant. You've heard it so much, but we will sometimes say, you know, this offering that we take in our service is an opportunity for us to give back to God out of the overflow of what he's given to us. Can I tell you, that's not just something we concocted. It's a biblical principle. It's a thing that Jesus models in John 21, where he looks at them and says, bring some of those fish, the fish I put in your net and add them to the breakfast I'm making. It's a great gift. There's great joy in being able to participate in what Jesus is doing, but everything we bring, whatever it is, your time, your money, your resources, your gifting, everything we bring and put on the fire, we wouldn't have if Jesus hadn't given it to us first. But how cool it is when we get to be a part of his breakfast, right? Because there isn't a better breakfast than that one. Jesus is already cooking, and he says, bring some of your fish. So they do that. They bring some of the fish over. Back to the text in John 21. Jesus says, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Verse 11, so Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, I don't know. I don't know whether or not there was a catch in their throats or in their hearts when Jesus took bread and gave it to them again. I would guess that for me, it would be impossible to receive bread from the Lord Jesus without remembering that night around the table where he said, as often as you gather together and eat bread, remember my body that's being given for you? The connection isn't made here necessarily, but would you imagine ever eating bread from the hand of Jesus again without remembering that? He takes the bread and he gives it to them. He gives them the fish. Verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. They eat this breakfast. And when they had finished, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Now, much has been made of this passage. In fact, whether you're a churchgoer or not, you're probably at least semi-familiar with that particular interaction. Much has been made about the fact that in the original language, the word love changes over time. So it starts with Jesus asking him if he agapes him, which is this sort of comprehensive love. And Peter comes back saying that he phileos him. I, I don't, I don't want to get into that today because I don't actually think it's as significant as many people has made it out to be. I think Jesus asked this question three times. And in one sense, he's doing that as a direct referral to the three denials, right? Peter denied him three times. I think that it's significant that the first question Jesus asks is, do you love me more than these? Because if you'll remember, when Jesus said, hey, they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, you're all going to fall away. Peter was the one who said, listen, I will never deny you. You can look this up in Matthew 26. He says, I will never deny you. I will never fall away. And in fact, he goes so far as to say, I can't speak about any of these other turkeys, right? These other disciples you picked, these guys, they don't seem that trustworthy to me. But Peter, no, Peter doesn't run, man. Peter's a rock. I ain't going nowhere, right? And it's in that moment that Jesus is like, man, you're going you're gonna to elevate yourself above them? Because Peter, dude, tonight... 
before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll deny me three times. Jesus now looks at him and says, do you love me more than these other guys here? Because that's what Peter had claimed. And he repeats it three times. It tells us in the text that he repeats it three times. And every time that Peter affirms his affection for Jesus, Jesus follows that with a commandment to serve. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. There's a clear connection in Jesus' mind between our, uh, our affirmation of affection and our service. But here's something that's more, the most important thing that I think is happening here. It says Jesus keeps repeating the question and that Peter is grieved by it. He's grieved by it. That's worth noting, and this is true of the entirety of the Bible. So here's just a little note for you whenever you're studying any text in Scripture. There is never a time in Scripture that God asks a question because he needs to know the answer. Okay? God, we believe, is omniscient, which means he knows everything. He knows everything. There's never a time that God is inquiring to discover something. There's never a time that God is asking a question because he's wondering or because he wants to know. God knows everything. Every time in Scripture we see God ask a question, he's always asking the question not for his instruction, but for the instruction of the one he's asking. If we take that truth and we apply it to this text, Jesus looks at Peter and says, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I do. And he says, you know, feed my sheep, do you love me? And he says, you know I do. He says, tend my lambs. He says to him the third time, do you, do you love me? And at that point, there's something in Peter that breaks. And he looks at Jesus and he goes, Jesus, you know everything, right? You know it all. Remember the day when, when, when you said we would betray you? And I said, no, no, I'll never do that. And these guys might, but I wouldn't. I'd rather die. And I made that whole fuss. And then what was it, like an hour later? And I was standing by the fire, and there's like a girl asking me if I even know you. And I cursed and said I didn't. Like, you knew. You knew from the get-go what was in my heart. You knew that what I was saying was different than what would happen. You know everything, Jesus. You know that I have love for you in my heart. And it's like Jesus goes, yeah, I just wanted to make sure you knew that. Peter, don't forget, bud. I know everything. Let me tell you why I think that's significant. I think there are some of us in the room who have become defined by our failures. And we feel like we've got to work overtime to prove ourselves. We feel like we've got to work overtime to make up for our mistakes and the places we've blown it and our, and our knuckleheaded decisions. Because somehow we feel like we've got to prove it to Jesus and to everybody else that we're good and that we've recovered and that we're on the other side of our mistakes and our failures. Can I tell you, everybody in this place is broken. And Jesus looks at Peter and asks him the only question, by the way, that's ever mattered to Jesus is, what do you want? We see it from the very beginning of John. He looks at the first disciples and says, what are you after? He doesn't say, what have you done? Where did you go to school? How much Bible trivia do you know? He doesn't ask him anything else. He asks his first disciples, what do you want? The operative question for Jesus has always been, what are you hungry for? What is your heart desire? And now he looks at Peter and says, do you love me? Knowing full well the answer. So that Peter, after the third time, goes, I don't know why you keep asking me this. You know that I love you. And it's as if Jesus is saying, right, but I want you to know that I know that you love me. And the same is true for some of you in this place this morning. You love Jesus? That's the the question that matters. Have you blown it? Have you been stupid this week, this morning? Have you done something you regret? Have you made mistakes? Have you stumbled and fallen? Have you said things you said you wouldn't say? Yeah, so of all of us. The question this morning is not, have you made a mistake? Because the answer to that is absolutely. The question this morning is, do you love Jesus? Now listen, for some of you, you might go, I don't know. I'm not sure I believe in Jesus. I'm not sure I think the Bible is true. Great, I'm so glad you're here. 
Because this is a great place to bring those questions. The answer for you this morning might be, no, I don't love Jesus, and I don't really know why I should. I love the honesty in that answer. But if the answer for you this morning, in your brokenness, is, yes, I love Jesus, here's what you need to know. Jesus knows that about you. You don't have anything to prove. If you love him, he knows. And he knows that the mistakes you made were not because you don't love him, but because you're in the process of being sanctified over time, because you're being refined, because we're growing, we're on a trajectory, a journey in which we're being conformed to the image of Christ, but none of us are there yet. And so on that journey of being conformed to the image of Christ, will you stumble, will you fail, will you say things you wish you could suck back in? Yes, you will, and in those moments, Jesus knows you love him, and that's what matters. If you wrapped yourself up in chains of guilt and shame, and fear, if you're the kind of person that wants to wrap yourself in a coat and tumble out of the boat away from the Lord Jesus, he knows your heart. Do you love him? If you love him, be, be set free from that guilt and that shame. Jesus looks at him and says, do you love me? If you love me, then get moving. Be active. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs, right? Jesus goes on to say this. Verse 18 Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. There's a part here at the end that follows where um, Peter goes, well, okay, I get it, but like, what about John? And Jesus is like, don't worry about John. My arrangement with John is my business. You follow me, right? Don't worry about what's gonna happen with him. But he says to Peter, he goes, look, man, when you were young, you got up, you got dressed, you went where you wanted to go, but when you're old, somebody else will dress you. They'll take you by the hand and they'll lead you to places you don't want to go. John tells us, as an aside, that Jesus says this to him to indicate to him this is the way he's going to die. Can I tell you? This isn't just the way Peter's going to die. Can I tell you that what Jesus says here is not just indicative of the death of Peter, it is indicative of the death of every follower of Jesus. That each and every one of us who love him, who follow him, we are on this trajectory of moving from a place where when we were young, we got up, we put on what we wanted to put on, and we went where we wanted to go, we made our own choices, we made our own decisions, we called all the shots. But there is a progression, a movement for the disciples of Jesus, a movement that goes from self-direction to submission, self-direction to submission. That is true of all of us. It's why in Mark, Jesus will say to us as as disciples, if you want to follow me, what? Take up your cross. Take up your cross. What's he calling us to? He's calling us to lay down our own choices in our own direction, our own outfits, if you will, and to put on what he tells us to put on and to hold out our hand and be led where he wants us to go. That is the death by which all disciples die. And I'll tell you, as a disciple or follower of Jesus, if you're fighting against that, right? If you're still trying to dress yourself and you're still trying to call the shots and you're still trying to go where you want to go based on your preferences, you got to be frustrated, ticked off all the time. Because Jesus is the king and you're not. Doesn't that drive you crazy? But if with Peter you can accept the way in which you will die, the way in which I will die, I will die as a follower of Jesus, not, not in 50 years, not in 20 years, not in four years, I will die every day by holding out my hand and allowing Jesus to lead me where he wants me to go, being dressed in his righteousness and not my own, right? There is a call here to be reconciled, to be restored, and it begins with understanding that Jesus knows what's going on in your heart. This morning, my friends, do you love him? 
If you love him, will you recognize that he's a God of grace, a God that can be tumbled towards instead of tumbled away from? Can you recognize that he is preparing provision for you and he invites you to participate, but everything you bring to that fire, he gave you first? And will you also recognize That the trajectory we're on is those who love Jesus and follow him, those who love him and tend his sheep, those who love him and feed his lambs. If that's you this morning, then the reality that you don't need to fight against, but you should submit to, is the reality that he will dress you and he will lead you where you want to go. And that's what death to self looks like. Peter understands it here. And at the end, John says, man, there's so many other things I could tell you. You could fill up all the books in the world, right? about Jesus, but these are the things, like he said in 20, that you need to know in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to close with one last verse here. It says in Psalms 103, just let this sort of, just let this be read over you and soak it up. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. If you like dust, he knows. And he loves you. And he knows you love him too. Don't allow your failures and your mistakes to define you. Allow them to be things over time that refine you to look more like Christ. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a heart that is aware of the fact that you know us, that you know everything, that you see our hearts and you see our affection and our love, our adoration even in the moments where we're dumb or stupid or we fail or prideful or ignorant or whatever, that those failures don't define us, but that it is our love for you that defines us. It's your love for us that defines us. And that love that you've stirred within us is also then what propels us, what steers us towards a life of service and sacrifice. We thank you for your love and we also thank you for the trouble it stirs for us in a good way. We love you and we need you. We couldn't live without you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.